It's uh, Christmas season, and there's a weird thing that happens with Christmas season. I don't know if you feel it, but when you were little and you were younger, it felt like Christmas lasted like four months. Do you feel that? And then you get old or older like I am, and all of a sudden it's like it's just straight up on you, you know? And you have one month because we're not allowed to listen to Christmas music before Thanksgiving in my house. I don't know if that's a rule in your house. You're not allowed to do anything Christmas until Thanksgiving. You have one month where you have to slam everything in, all right? We slam it in. We are never busier than the month of December. We have to watch Home Alone at least 10 times with my kids. That's part of the deal, right? And every time I watch it, the, the movie holds up, but you got it, it's always amazing because I just got to throw this up. It was as close as I could get. But my youngest son looks exactly like Macaulay Culkin. I don't know why, but he has there is some sort of risk, distance relative thing going on. But he, we are a Macaulay Culkin family. We always go and check out Christmas lights. I was at a life group uh, Christmas party this last weekend. And we talked about like favorite traditions. And one of them for many was driving around the Christmas lights. They're not as many anymore, but we did that last night with our kids, just driving around and looking at Christmas lights. And then for us, there's a unique family Ron thing that we do, which is Megan I's annual disagreement. There's once a year, we don't call it an argument, but it is definitely a disagreement, and it's a fun thing to watch. And that is our Christmas tree. We are obsessed with our Christmas tree. But as you know, there's one thing that the Rons splurge on every year, and that's a Christmas tree. And every year, mostly Meg, she's upstairs so she can't argue it, picks out a tree that is way too big, insanely too heavy, and in my opinion, way, way, way too much money. And so we pick out this tree and every year we get into a car and we drive over to Eatonville and the whole time we begin our discussion on how this year, and we're in complete agreement, and that this year we're gonna get a smaller tree. We have to get a smaller tree. It doesn't make sense to get that big of a tree. And every year we somehow get a tree larger than the last year. This year, Meg fell in love with this tree. And she fell in love with this tree and she swears, she says, hey, this is smaller than last year. Trust me, there's no way this is bigger. So I get down and I start cutting it. You have to use a regular, you see my face, yes. And I am uh, cutting it, you have to use a, a handsaw, you can't use a chainsaw. And you're just walking that thing and you realize for 20 minutes, 30 minutes, you're just cutting, it's not really 20 minutes, I'm not that weak, but it's a lot. And, you're, and you fall this tree, all right? Well, it turns out that this year's tree was over 14 feet tall. And it took three grown men. My friend from Canada was in. Uh, Marty was in here. Next, next slide as we go. I cut two feet off of this tree, and it was still this big. It is steel reinforced. It's tied by wire so it doesn't kill someone when they come over to visit. Uh, but this is one of our family traditions, is our annual Christmas discussion. Every year we also talk about this. Every year we always have this discussion on how do we make sure that we set up rhythms and how do we make sure that we set up time to keep our focus on God and the birth of Jesus. This is an important question for each of us because it's, this is a time of great fun, but it's also a time of distraction and noise and busyness. And the challenge is that as humans, without even thinking about it, we can completely miss the point of it. We go on our days and we, we, without even thinking about it, we can lessen the significance of what God did on that night. 
And throughout scriptures, scripture, there are these road signs. There are these moments. And there are these things where God is saying, look at what I'm about to do. There's these road signs of God saying, pay attention because I'm about to give you the Messiah. I'm about to give you the person of Jesus. And so as we enter the season around Christmas, we need to take time to pause and to reflect on the birth of salvation, on the birth of Jesus. I was reading the other day and I was in uh, 1 Peter and this verse popped out at me. And we're in the heart of this busy, loud, noisy season, and, and, and it's kind of overwhelming. And 1 Peter 1.13 says this, Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. This is a powerful verse for, for, your, for believers. At all times, this is a powerful verse, but it, I think it's especially during this Christmas season. We are to prepare our minds for actions. You can read this as an idiom. I was doing some study of this idiom of, of this idea of it's girding up the loins of your mind. All right. So back in the day, it was an ancient practice that men would take their robes and if they had to move quickly, if they had to get to somewhere quickly, they would tuck their robes up into their belts so that they could move quick, quickly, quickly without tripping. For me, we, it's like, how do we move quickly without, with skinny jeans? You know what I'm saying? Think about that. We don't wear robes today, but how, do we, how are we ready to move quickly? And prepare our, our, our minds. So it's this thought that as believers, in every season, our minds are to be tough. This idea that we must be ready for action. Even in the busyness of our life, we need to be ready for action. And then it says, and we are to be sober-minded. Or it could be translated self-control. We need to be in self-control. We, we as believers should always be free from every form of mental and spiritual and physical drunkenness or excess. Okay? That's what it means. We as believers should be not controlled by the noise or by the culture or by the season that we're in, but instead we as believers should be directed from within. This is what it's saying. We should have self-control. So as we head into these church calendars, one of the challenges in modern church life is that we come to Christmas or we come to Resurrection Sunday and we get so busy with the noise of the culture, we get so busy with the noise going out there, all the things that we could do, that we aren't in this place where we're saying, Lord, I need to be ready for action. I need to set my heart and my mind on the things that are of you. Please hear me say this. I am not ruining Christmas. It's okay to have fun. It's okay to have tra traditions. It's okay to, uh, to really be in a celebratory time but it's saying that we have to set our hearts and our minds on what matters. And we are to live this way because we are always called to be focusing on what? What does it say up there? To set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Being followers of the way demands determination, especially in busy seasons. And a believer's hope is to be set fully, it says. Now this word fully is teleos, meaning completely or unchangeable, okay? So completely or unchangeable. We are to set our hope without reserve on the grace of Jesus Christ, that he came as a child 
to experience everything that you and I experience on a daily basis, that he chose to die a gruesome death for our sins, and that he was raised from the dead, and that he will be coming back again. We have to set our minds and our hope on that. And so as a community of Jesus followers, we of course do fun things. We lit the Christmas tree, although we blew a breaker. That's why it's not lit right now. Sorry. The Frankenstein uh, building is, is come, it hits us again, but we're getting there. But we do traditions. We do Christmas lighting. We do cocoa. and We do all that fun stuff. But we also must stay focused and fully hopeful in the person of Jesus. So with that, over the next couple of weeks, I, I was kind of saying, okay, Lord, what are we doing heading into Christmas? And right away, he said, Isaiah 9. I want you to focus on Isaiah 9. So we're going to be focusing on Isaiah 9. Now, the book of Isaiah is a good news, bad news book, okay? Some might actually call it a bad news, good news book. And so what we see is that the book of Isaiah addresses the problem of sin. It's going to go over and over again for the need that we have as individuals for salvation, the need that we have for salvation. And Isaiah is called to speak to the people and call attention to their wrongdoings. And he's going to say, it's going to result in judgment. It is. That's the truth, that, that our wrongdoings will ultimately always lead to judgment. But here's the good news. Judgment is not the end of the story. The book is filled with prophecies about God's salvation and his restoration. And so this is a hopeful picture that made the book of Isaiah one of the most important books for early Christians. This would have been a book that early Christians would have put an emphasis on. They would have studied it because Isaiah points over and over again to the ultimate salvation that's going to come in Jesus Christ. A matter of fact, Isaiah is for a, a book from the prophets is the most uh, referenced in the New Testament. So there's clear uh, that this was a, an important book for the early Christians. And Isaiah 9 in particular is quoted because it's a messianic prophecy. The prophecy about the birth and the person of Jesus. And it gives us insights, I believe, as modern believers on how we are to respond, how we are to set our minds, and how we are to, to be self-controlled during this time to set our hope fully on Jesus. And I'm going to build it out a little bit. But as we get in this, we have to understand what's happening as Isaiah is delivering these prophecies. These are future visions that, that God is going to give that will ultimately fulfill his purposes. Now, reading prophetic books is always hard, okay? This is one that I, I find at least. But there's, there's a couple reasons why it's challenging. First, they're written in ancient Hebrew poetry, okay? So you have to understand poetry. You have to understand that. It's a lot different, and I'm just going to lay this out at you. It's a lot different because we are a culture where we don't even read poetry, let alone we just read the uh, first line of a headline when your friend sends it to you, right? Or an Instagram post about halfway through. We don't actually spend time reading these things. But second, they would also these prophecies assume that you would know what's happening when they're saying them. Does that make sense? So these prophecies assume that you would have a decent understanding of what's happening when these scriptures are being laid out. And so a short summary as we head into Isaiah 9. At this time of Isaiah, 
there are two Israelite kingdoms going on, okay? So there's two kingdoms. It's split in half. The northern kingdom is called Israel, and they have fallen to a group called the Assyrians, okay? Now, the, 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 the second kingdom, the southern kingdom, is a kingdom called Judah, and they have fallen to Babylon. So they've fallen to the Babylonians. So this is what's happening as Isaiah is speaking these things. Basically, things are not looking good for people. This, that's the overall arching, arching thing. But it's an important context because in chapter 7, the southern kingdom of Judah is getting threatened again. And so Isaiah tells the king of Judah, King Ahaz, to tell him what's up. So God's like, go to King Ahaz and tell him what's up. Now, King Ahaz is a descendant of King David, also very important, as you know, because all this matters in the person of Jesus, okay? Well, what do we know about, about this? We remember that we know that Jesus is going to, and always was promised, from the line of David. And so what do we know about King David? Before all this, God raised up David to be a royal leader who would be faithful on behalf of unfaithful people. But we see David has his failures, right? Not imperfect. And he commits adultery and he commits murder and he's imperfect. So God promises that the ideal leader of Israel would come from David's line in the future, but it's not him. Okay. So this is all important as we talk about Isaiah 9, because we're going to go into this more over the next couple of weeks. So God promises this and Isaiah is going to point to this and he's going to go to King Ahaz and you say, you have to not put your trust in the Assyrians, but you must put your trust in the Lord because King Ahaz was basically trying to set up an alliance with the Assyrians. But you see, the king doesn't listen, and instead he builds this alliance with the Assyrians. And this is huge because the Assyrians not only are going to rule the northern kingdom, but they're going to rule the southern kingdom now. All right? And, and Isaiah is giving this warning. And he goes on in chapter 8 to say, look, because your people have rejected God, you and your people have rejected God, the road leads to darkness. This is going to lead to darkness. Things are going to get dark. He says it over and over again. Read chapter 8, and I hope that gives you some context. But we're going to jump into Isaiah 9, where Isaiah is going to fill up his people and fill up his people with hope. And we're going to look at what this means for us today. Isaiah 9.1, Nevertheless, there will be no more gloom for those who were in distress. Isaiah is pointing out all the mess that we just talked about. And he's writing to people who are just living in gloom. They have captured, they're in exile, there really is no hope, there's no, uh, they're, they're in distress, they are people of distress and they are people of gloom. But Isaiah starts pointing to hope. And he's saying, rather than all this pain and darkness and hopelessness you have been experiencing, all of this will be gone. Darkness will not continually be on you. When we think of this story, this, this idea, I, the first story that came to my mind, I hope this is helpful, I have no idea. The first uh, story that came to my mind was, I was uh, one of the things that we love to do is we love to get away. And Meg and I, with some friends, we had gotten a cabin this last year in, uh, in Winthrop. And Winthrop is like the most north, and it's a town of like 38 people, so there's not even lights. And we were like a 
45 minutes outside of that. So this is the darkest place that you could imagine. When night came, it was pitch black. And my and Meg, I feel like I'm throwing Meg under the bus a lot, but I'm trying not to. But she she loves to go outside and look at stars. Why not? We don't get stars. It was the summer. We don't get stars out here. And she loves to just lay on this deck of this cabin and look up and look at the stars. Well, I she went out and she was looking at the stars and laying on the, on the deck and I had just finished my shower and the kids are asleep. Our friends are heading out to bed. And all of a sudden I walk into my room, which was open and uh, something flies directly at my face. And that something, I've never seen one before, but then I did all of a sudden within about inches, was a bat. If you ever had a bat in your house, it is the grossest thing I have ever seen. We talk about rats a lot because we have mice in our house, but, but uh, this is a flying rat coming directly at you. It was the worst. I screamed, I yelled, and, uh, and I ran downstairs and uh, get all the kids because they're sleeping on all the couches and there is a bat flying all over, all over the place. I get all the kids and we put them into a room. They're crying as if like the, there's a, like a, a murderer in this house. And I'm sitting there, my friends are going in there and I'm sitting there in my towel, uh, sitting in the downstairs thinking, what on earth is gonna happen? And so we, we Google real search, what, real quick, what do you do if there's a bat in your house and you turn off all the lights and you open the door. So I'm laying on this hardwood floor, which is laying low, which is a towel around me. And I'm thinking, if there's ever a time of darkness and gloom, the thoughts in my head were this moment. I thought this bat's never gonna go. go. We're, we're out in the middle of nowhere. There's nobody that I can call. Uh, there's not only is there one bat, but we just opened the house to thousands of bats that are probably flying around now. How are we going to know we're opening the, we're turning on the lights, the bats still flying. We close, turn off the lights and we just sit there for half an hour, probably 15, 20 minutes. Kids are crying. I'm laying there on this hardwood floor. And I just think if I could ever experience darkness and distress and gloom, this would be the feeling. And I think this is the thing, that this is what people were feeling. You just sit there and you just think, what's even the point? Like, what am I going to do? If, if the Lord doesn't come through, there is nothing I can do to get this bat out of here, right? And what we see is that many of us have these thoughts. Many of us look at the city of Lakewood or the city that you live in, and you're like, man, there is so much darkness and there's so much gloom. It's like, what's even the point out there? We can begin to have these thoughts that creep into our head. Some of us have family situations. I know because I prayed for you. Some of us have family situations where there's darkness and there's gloom and you're just like, what's even the point? You're sitting there and you're saying, ah, there's nothing that I can do. And, and they're marked with gloom and distress. There was a homeless man uh, that was out here sleeping um, just a couple days ago. And, and I got to minister to him and, and it, was, it, it ended up great. But you're just looking him in the eyes and you're asking him for a story. And in his eyes, as I'm preparing this sermon, I was just looking in his eyes and I said, there's gloom and there's distress and there's literally no hope in this situation. Literally, the dude had no hope. I, I kept coming up with ideas of how to help him and it would just be excuse after excuse or reason after reason. There was literally no hope in this guy's mind. But Isaiah 9.1 is going to tell you that there is hope. It says, nevertheless, there will be no more gloom for those who were in distress. In the past, he humbled the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. 
But in the future, he will honor Galilee of the nations by the way of the sea beyond the Jordan. Now, what is Zebulun and what is Naphtali? Uh, these are two of the nor most northwest tribes in the northern kingdom. So they would have been the first to fall from the inv invasion by the Assyrians. So AKA is saying the gloomiest and the most distressed of all the gloomy people and all the distressed people are these two tribes. They would have had darkness fall on them first. And Isaiah is writing in a time where they were still under judgment in these lands. And he's calling them to a future restoration. And not only is he calling them to a future restoration, but he's saying to all the people, he's saying these two places that you don't even think will ever get free from this. The Lord is going to say there's no more gloom and there's no more distress for these places. He's calling to a future restoration. Now, one of the important things about this land is it's Galilee. What do we know about Galilee? This is the place where Jesus' ministry started. This is a place where Jesus got it all going. And God fashioned Galilee is a place that has a bad rap. Galilee would have been called a good-for-nothing place. Sometimes I've heard of Lakewood called a good-for-nothing place, but we're holding firm here, okay? But we see God is going to take a good-for-nothing land, and he's going to mark it as a gateway to all the nations to come and worship him. He's going to say this, this gloom and distress resulted from oppression and separation from Lord's covenantal love, but the Lord will graciously turn humiliation into glory. If you're in a time where you have humiliation or you have in a time where you're in gloom or distress, the Lord wants to redeem it. Even these two places. And Isaiah is saying he's going to do it through the coming Messiah. It's all about Jesus. It's all about Jesus. Although these two northern tribes and the people know the ways of God and they know that they were supposed to live this way, their salvation will come from the very one who they rejected. The Messiah will set people free. Now, Isaiah continues with this promise that there is light that is coming. The, the distress and the darkness and the gloom, they're going to get replaced. It goes on, Isaiah 9-2. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of deep darkness, a light has dawned. Everyone has experienced darkness. When we were in captivity in our own lives, some of us came from some really, really dark stuff, myself included. When I was saved, it was like God had to pull me out of darkness and gloom that I could not even I couldn't even remember how I got there. You know what I'm saying? But instead, light comes, and we all walked in the darkness, and we've all said yes to darkness, and we've all allowed darkness in, but then we experience light. When we experience the person of Jesus, when we understand our salvation, we experience hope and we walk in a society that's dark. We walk in a society that's gloomful, gloomy. But instead, we are people of hope and we are people of light. And this line carries so much weight. Because look at this. Look into the book of Matthew. This is where Jesus points to when he begins his preaching and healing ministry in Galilee. So Jesus, the first thing that he's going to preach Matthew 14, 26, or the first, one of the first things that he's going to preach, Matthew 14, 12, 20, 16, when Jesus heard that John had been put into prison, he withdrew to Galilee. 
Leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum, which was by the lake in the area of Zebulun and Naphtali. To fulfill what had, was said through the prophet Isaiah, land of Zebulun and land of Naphtali, the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people living in darkness have seen a great light on those living in the land in the shadow of death. A light has dawned. One of, one of the works that Jesus does is that he brings light into every situation. And Isaiah was telling us, and Jesus tells us, Jesus came to be a light to both Jews and Gentiles. He came to be a light to all. John was describing Jesus when he said this. In John, when, first chapter, the light shines in the darkness and darkness has not overcome it. Jesus, the Messiah, the promised one, came as light dawning over the world. And anyone experienced physical and spiritual darkness, darkness have no power and no ability to extinguish light. It doesn't. Darkness has not and will not ever overcome light. So important to say, to say, when we're walking through darkness, when we're walking through gloominess out there, we have to remember that the light of the world came and that darkness can never overcome it. Isaiah 9.2, it says, The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of deep darkness, a light has dawned. The verbs in this section are what's called the prophetic perfect. Isaiah is so sure that the events are going to happen in the future that he describes them as if they have already happened. He's so sure that light is going to come in the darkness, that Jesus, the Messiah, is going to come and darkness will not overcome it, that he gives the prophetic perfect. He speaks like it's already happened. Light is going to invade darkness. Now here's the meat of it. God is doing this, so how are we to respond? We rejoice. We rejoice. And over and over again, the next part of Isaiah's prophecy, he's going to talk about joy. It's actually one of the main themes in Isaiah. So we look at it. Isaiah 9.3, you have enlarged the nation and increased their joy. They rejoice before you as people rejoice at the harvest, as warriors rejoice when dividing the plunder. The Messiah is coming. Jesus is coming. And he brings all people what? He brings all people joy. And so we rejoice. Now, uh, one of the things that uh, is interesting is that joy in the Bible is closely associated, but it's not the same thing as happiness and gladness. Sometimes we can miss joy because we think if we're going to be joyful, then we must be, uh, we must be happy or glad. But that's not what's happening. What's happening is Joy is a state of being. It's, it's a state of being. It, it's more than just an emotion. It, it's a state of being. And happiness is something that we experience, but joy is a result of choice. We, we get to choose to live in joy. We get to, sometimes we think, man, I'm, I'm doing this Jesus stuff, but I don't really feel happy all the time. Does anybody ever feel that? I feel that sometimes. Like I'm doing this Jesus stuff, but like, I don't feel happy all the time, but we're chasing the wrong, set, the wrong thing. Instead, we say, because of God, because of what God did through Jesus, because the Spirit is in me, I rejoice and I choose joy, okay? 
And joy for the Hebrews is often associated with a body part. And when it's saying joy here, it's saying straight from the heart. Joy was understood to be coming straight from the center of us. It's a heart emotion, okay? But what's interesting is that joy doesn't remain in the heart. This is what we miss sometimes. Joy didn't remain in the heart for them. It was part of a movement or an expression that had to have an appropriate action with it, all right? So when we read joy, it says this, we rejoice, we shout for joy, we are merry, we come and we uh, give our shouts of joy to the Lord. It comes from the heart, but joy isn't happiness. Joy is so much more than happiness, and it's in our heart, and it comes out as an expression. It's always meant to come out as an expression. Now, it's interesting because there's two main themes when joy is talked about in the Old Testament. Number one, it's often associated with eating, all right? So it's often associated with feasts, in particular, particular religious feasts. So I just got to put it out there. It's often when you're eating and you got joy, you're experiencing God. And Isaiah is going to say, because of the Messiah, because of Jesus, we have as much joy as those who experience harvest. Now, one of the great challenges of the world today is that none of y'all grow your own food. So you don't, we don't really understand this unless you are a farmer or you're a prepper or Mama Bertha. She grows her own food, let's be honest. But you don't understand, we don't understand the harvest. This book, this was written to people who would understand planting and growing and waiting and struggling and going long periods without this, without eating. So there would have been a level of starvation that's happening. The best way I can describe this, because I was talking to my kids about this, was like, you know when you pull up to the Chick-fil-A and the line's really long? Think of that for the harvest season. Like, oh, come on. I need this, I need this uh, number one upsize the fry right away. But what we see is that for an agrarian society, harvest was a big deal. There is rejoicing and praise and thanksgiving that happens when the harvest comes. It's a deep joy. Why? Because they got to eat. All right? And so Isaiah is saying, you're going to get this joy. Now, the second one, Joy is often related to victory over one's enemies, all right? So as a warrior rejoices when dividing the plunder is what it says. I'm a fan of war movies. I love any good war movie, World War II in particular. World War II is my, my go-to. And there's, a, there's a, a, a show that's Band of Brothers, if anybody watches Band of Brothers. But Band of Brothers, there's like one scene in particular that I think about, but Basically, what happens is you surround a town that like the Nazis were in control of, right? And you fight for weeks, if not months. You run out of food. You're going hungry. You're running out of supplies. Things are looking ho hopeless. You're, you're hard work. You're tired. And then you get some sort of advancement. You get some sort of victory. The Nazis flee. And what happens? It goes from sitting in a bunker where you're like, I'm going to die at any moment to all of a sudden you're running into this town and you're getting food and you're getting medicine and you're getting supply and you're plundering. I have never been part of a plunder, but when I watch these video, these, uh, these movies, you, a plunder looks like a fun thing, right? Because you're just like, you go from gloom and distress to plunder. You go from not enough food and don't know what's going to happen to harvest. 
and in it comes from the center of our heart, joy. And what Isaiah is saying is that for all of us who have experienced gloom, who have experienced distress, who are experiencing a world where other people are experiencing gloom and distress, he's saying there's going to be so much joy if you just believe in what, I, what God's about to do. So let's read on because he's going to say why. Isaiah 9, 4. For as in the day of Midian's defeat, you have shattered the yoke that burdens them, the bar across their shoulders, the rod of their oppressors. Jesus will be the answer for oppression always. Jesus is always the answer to oppression. Isaiah refers back to the story of Gideon. We, we talked about the story of Gideon this summer. If you want to watch it, it's, uh, it will go in depth about what's happening. But what do we know about that story? Isaiah is saying that the, when the Messiah comes, it will be like Gideon who was under the oppression of the Midians, who were in a land of darkness and gloom. Do you remember we talked about that in the story? He's in a land of darkness and gloom. And just he has to fight them. If you remember, God keeps blessing his troops over and over again. So Gideon goes in with just a few troops and the power of God, and he overcomes the Midianites. He defeats an, op an oppressive regime, and he expels them from the land. And God sends Jesus to do the same thing. God sends Jesus to shatter the yokes that burden us. Any burden that we have, all the burdens out there, Jesus came to shatter them. And he came to bring hope and peace and joy to all facing injustice, to all facing corruption, to all facing exploitation, to all dealing with insecurities, to all under the burdens that everyday world comes. Jesus is the answer. All the scars of the world, every scar that we hold, Jesus came and he's going to defeat him. And it says this, he breaks the yoke of all the burdens in our lives. Jesus breaks the, the yoke of every burden. He lifts the heavy weights that are on us. And it's because of Jesus, even when we face darkness, even when we face gloom, even when we're like, I don't know where the next paycheck's gonna come from, even when we say, I don't know how this family, family situation is gonna go, even when we say, I don't know how I'm gonna get a job, Jesus is the answer. And he says, we face darkness, we can rejoice like people of the harvest. We can rejoice like people of the plunder because he's going to break every yoke of oppression on us. We also see that Jesus is going to bring peace. Isaiah 9.5 goes on. Every warrior's boot used in battle and every garment rolled in blood will be destined for burning, will be fuel for the fire. What in the world is going on here? This is a really significant line. The Messiah comes and it's like a victory of a war. That's what he's saying. The Messiah comes and there's victory. The burning of the boots and the burning of the bloody clothes of the enemy signified this. The war is over and we got victory. That's what it means. Spoils were dedicated to God and military equipment was set on fire. And so all wartime dress of the enemy or equipment would be set on fire. Anything that the soldiers would carry themselves would be set on fire and was destroyed because it's no longer required in an era of peace. 
Jesus comes and he brings peace and he rolls back darkness. And Isaiah identifies that we are in a new era where the king of king reigns and the victory will happen and is happening. And we live in that victory. No more darkness and gloom, no more oppression. Instead, we rejoice. We have shouts of joy because Jesus has come. Jason, I'll, I'll have you come up. I'm about to finish here. But during Christmas, I think it's so important that we understand this. I think so often we, as believers, walk defeated, literally defeated. We can feel like I did as the bat's flying over my head and I'm sitting there on hardwood floor in just a towel. Like, God, what? Are, what? Get this bat out of here. <laughs> I know. But instead, there's light and darkness. There's no more gloom. Jesus came and he brought light into the world. Because of Jesus, light replaces darkness. Joy replaces gloom. Burdens are lifted and hope has come. Victory comes in the person of Jesus. So here's my challenge. We're entering Christmas, and there's a challenge to me, so I'm speaking to myself. I get texts all the time, and I hear stories, and like we're, this isn't in my notes, but we're, maybe it's just, we've become a culture that complains a lot. Maybe that's part of it. But many people are walking around defeated by darkness right now. Like it's so gloomful, like gloomy. It's so, it's so, it's so dark and like, will, will Lakewood ever get better? Will UP ever get better? Will Tacoma ever get better? Will my job ever get better? Will my, and we just kind of give up. And what Isaiah is saying is that you might feel that, but the Messiah is coming. And here's the thing. We live on the other side of the Messiah. Jesus came. And when he came, he left us the Holy Spirit. And remember what the Holy Spirit can only speak what the Father tells him, right? So we live in a world where we should be walking around like the most hopeful people you have ever seen. No matter how dark it is, gone in Jesus' name, light has invaded this space. When we're going through something, we should have this weird peace on us. We don't know where the next paycheck is going to come. We don't know how this is going to resolve. We, we don't know how, uh, how, where rent's going to come. Maybe that's where we're at. But Jesus is the answer. He's lifting every burden off us. And he's the light of the world. No matter how dark it feels out there, remember that the light always wins. And that gloom that tries to ensnare us replaced with joy. And not some fake happiness, but joy from the sinner that has to act and has to rejoice. John 8, 12. He said it right here. I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of light. We follow the light of the world. And when we celebrate the light coming, it's important to ask, where have I been allowing darkness into my life? 
Where have I allowed darkness to push back and say, man, maybe it is going to win. But instead we say no in Jesus' name. Because he goes, he, he also said this, and this must have shocked his disciples, but I, I hope it shocks us as well. Matthew 5, 14, you are the light of the world. A town built on a hill cannot be hidden. He's saying this, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of light. And then he goes and says, you are the light of the world. You, each one of us, stand up. I'm pray for us. Worship man, you come on up. We chose the song, Do It Again. Um, because I don't know if there's anybody struggling. I hope this was a, a uplifting sermon. Because darkness has no place. And why? Because the Lord is doing it. It's nothing that we do out of our might. It's not trying harder. It's a positioning. It's a positioning of our heart. It's a positioning of who God is and who we are. And, Lord, and, and, and the enemy is trying to mess up so many of your lives. I, I see it. Trust me, I'm on that. I'm on the text streams. I get it. And we're going to push back right now in worship. All right? So just bow your heads. And it, if you're going through something, everyone bow their heads. If you're going through something, it, it's okay. I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand. But I just ask you to open up your hands and receive it. If you're going through something that you need the, the light of the world to come through on, just open up your hands. Receive it. Heavenly Father, in the land of Zebulun, in the land of Naphtali, in the darkest and gloomiest of all places, where they're like, there's no hope, you came through. And you said, there's going to be a light that dawns. And when the light dawns, darkness has no place in that. Each one of my brothers and sisters who has their hands open right now is just going through something where they just need darkness to be pushed back in Jesus' name. I pray against striving in these people's lives right now, that they would release it. That's why we have our hands open, that they would release it right now in Jesus' name. That they would not hold back, that they would not worry, that they would not be anxious about anything, but they would have the peace of God in them. And Heavenly Father, when light gets dawn, Darkness has no place but to flee. So, Lord, I pray in each one of these circumstances that are represented here, that you, in the midst of it, would help remind us that we are people of hope and that we are people of light and we are people of peace because of what you did, Jesus, that the victory is yours, that we can burn all the wartime materials because peace has come on this place. Peace in our heart. Heavenly Father, we love you with everything that we are. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.